Welcome to the Kalos Church Podcast. We're so honored that you're joining us today. The word kalos is a poorly pronounced Greek word that means beautiful. And we believe here at Kalos that the words and the ways of Jesus are very beautiful. That's why each week we're bringing content to make known that beauty. So let's go ahead and jump right in to this last Sunday's sermon. Over the last couple of years, we've all experienced disorientation to some degree, some sense of maybe disappointment, maybe disillusionment. And when those things happen in life, one of the questions that arises is, well, where's God in the midst of this? How does Jesus respond to us in our moments of disorientation? How does Jesus respond to us in our moments of uh, kind of disappointment, even the moments where we're tempted to kind of walk away? I grew up in Malaysia. That's where I'm from originally. Um, my, my parents, as Pradeepan said, are both Sri Lankan in their uh, ancestry and ethnicity. My dad's Tamil, Indian. My mom's Sinhalese, which if you know anything about Sri Lanka, those are the two ethnicities that have, you know, were at war with one another. But in one marriage, the Lord brought uh, reconciliation <laughs> together. So there you go. Uh, my dad grew up in a Hindu family. He met my mom in... Um, at the University of Singapore, she was raised Christian, kind of nominally, like in name only, um, or more, you know, there were some things working there, but she knew enough to say, I'm not going to marry a Hindu. Um, and so he said, okay, well, I'll convert, you know, so most successful story of dating as an evangelism strategy, we don't recommend that. Uh, people don't, you know, uh, but, but actually the, there's obviously more to the story. The Lord was already at work in my dad's heart, drawing him to the love of Jesus. And so when I was 10, uh, we moved from Malaysia to the Pacific Northwest to Portland, Oregon, which is a city that only hopes to be as cool as Seattle. And uh, we lived there for three years, and then we moved back to Malaysia. Uh, I finished up my high school years, and then I came back to the States to go to college uh, in that booing metropolis of Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, which, is, which is where Pradeepan would later go after me. He says, you know, he, he looks up to me. I mean, I, yeah, I am older than him. That is true. And my beard is grayer than yours, you know? So there you go. Respect your elders. Okay. We're going to talk today about what Jesus, what Jesus does when we find ourselves in moments of disorientation. When I was a kid, I was the youngest of kind of our little group of cousins. And so when they would come over and we'd play together, uh, if I got kind of upset, I would, I would, or I felt like left out or whatever, I would run away. But I would run away like two doors down, you know? And we had this sweet uh, Portuguese neighbor, Mrs. Albuquerque, who would uh, give me tea and cookies and call my mom and say, we've got Glenn, uh, we'll send it back, you know. <laughs> and maybe some of you over the last couple of years, you've sort of felt like this, like the isolation, maybe there's been a change in jobs, maybe change in relationship stuff. And whatever the cause, it's just made you say, I don't know, I just want to hide out. And But you've dragged yourself, you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're like, I'm here, but I'm not. Like, I'm kind of like, my heart is testing the waters. And I just don't know, how does Jesus even respond to, to someone like me in this moment? So we're going to look at a story that happens right after Easter, appropriately. You know, it happens shortly after the, the Easter moment. And it's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. If you've got a Bible, you can follow along. If not, we'll have it on the screen. But we're talking about what happens in these moments. And it says here in verse 13, on that day, two disciples were traveling to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about everything that had happened. And then a few verses later, it says, and they stopped their faces downcast. Now, we don't get the geography of the region maybe automatically, but Jerusalem in the Old Testament, Jerusalem by Jewish tradition, Jerusalem was 
considered the center of the universe. Like they kind of believed this is where God, this is the hub of God's activity. Like if you wanted to be where it happens, this it's Jerusalem. Jerusalem was called the joy of the whole earth. It was the place that prophets like, like a guy named Isaiah envisioned the nations processing up Mount Zion in Jerusalem. They envisioned Jerusalem as the place that people would come to, not walk away from. But in this story, there are disciples who are walking away from Jerusalem sad. And I think the story today is a bit of a a setup for us. It's a parable in a way for us about our moment, about our moment in culture and in the world today where there were these places that we thought these were supposed to be the places where people meet with God and their lives get changed. But when we look around the world, people are walking away from those places, not walking toward it, walking away from it and not with joy, but with sadness. And so what I want to say up up top here is that people are walking away from religious spaces downcast and disappointed. People are walking away from religious spaces downcast and disappointed. And so you could hear the sermon this morning on two levels. You might hear it this morning about you. You might say, well, that's me. That's That's not people. That's like me. And you might hear the sermon this morning on the level of the friends that you're around. You might be like, well, it's not exactly me, but actually I have a lot of friends like that. A lot of friends who they were kind of in and something's happened over the last couple of years. Maybe the pandemic revealed stuff. Maybe the pandemic accelerated stuff. Ah, Maybe it was the political stuff. Maybe it was other tensions. I, I don't know, but I've got friends. How do I meet them with Jesus? And we're gonna learn from what Jesus does with these people, uh, with people who are walking away. But I want to just pause and just spend a couple minutes and give a little snapshot of our culture. And this might be a this might be a helpful thing just for us to kind of name, like what is going on in this moment, in this sort of context today. So I want to give a little cultural snapshot and use these words: the shift, the surge, and the aftermath. Uh, uh, in 2004, the day after Christmas, about eight, you know 18 years ago. Um, there was an earthquake that happened at the bottom of the Indian Ocean that created a massive tsunami. Do you remember this? And it washed along beaches from Thailand to Sri Lanka a little bit to Indonesia, and it did a lot of its most devastating effects in Indonesia. And I remember watching it because this was in 2004. Three years prior to that, my wife and I had honeymooned on some of those beaches because we had to go back to Malaysia for a second like wedding reception thing. And, and, and we're looking at these images in Thailand or whatever, and we're saying, oh my goodness, what, what disaster. But I want you to kind of use this moment, and, and obviously there's a, there was a real tragedy that happened, and we don't want to diminish that. I also think it has this powerful potential to be an image for us about our moment. And think of the shift as those tectonic plates and the surge of floodwaters and then the messy aftermath. So what's the shift? Uh, this morning, I want to suggest to you that the shift is the shift between Christianity and culture. For 2,000 years, Christianity and culture have had an uneasy relationship. Sometimes it's had a very complicated, compromised relationship. You might even say, yeah, there are moments when it, this culture sort of took on Christian words and Christian uh, prof- confessions, but was it really? But here we are in our moment, especially in Western society, where it's like these two tectonic plates that are now there's creating friction. Now, I know you guys, you're like, you live with volcanoes and tectonic plates, so you're like getting nervous about this metaphor right now. You know? But what we're seeing in society as a whole is 
There's an uneasiness. And what was always a complicated relationship is now sometimes becoming a contentious relationship. Where, where our, the culture around us is like, I don't know, do we want some of that? We want some of, some of it, but we don't want all of this. And what's going on? Can churches meet? Churches don't need to meet. They're not essential. What's going on? And there's this friction that's happening. But it's not just that. There's also a surge. Imagine the sort of surge, of the tsunami kind of surge. But the surge, for our metaphor here, is of alternate meaning-making systems. That's kind of a weird phrase. Alternate mean, meaning-making stories. But as human beings, we need to figure out a ways to make meaning in the world. And so there's little stories that we tell ourselves. There's probably loads of them, but I want to just name a couple of them for you. One of them is something you might call neo-pluralism, new pluralism. And the idea here is I can mix and match. Now, what's neo-pluralism compared to old pluralism, right? Original, the OG pluralism. I grew up in Malaysia where about 45% of the country is, is Muslim, about 10% are Christians, and then the remaining sort of 45% is split between Buddhists and Hindus. That's like what you think of when you think of pluralism. You're like, yeah, all these different religions, but nobody's confused about who's who, right? No, nobody's saying, are you this or are you that? You, you kind of, once, you, once someone says, I'm a Buddhist or I'm a Hindu or I'm a, you know, you're like, oh, okay, okay, cool. And you just sort of, you know, let other people do their thing and there's this distance. But in the West today, there's a new kind of pluralism that says you can actually mix and match. And so people think, oh, I like that. I like that Jesus-y stuff because he was really cool about the poor and about, you know, oh, but I like, I like this stuff from Buddhism and I like this stuff from here. And we kind of just curate our own religion. That's what we're seeing in, in the world around us. I, I, I went to listen to a guy at a, a book society sort of gathering. He's a well-known, award-winning author. And he described himself as a Catholic Buddhist. He's like, just making up categories, you know? He's like, I, I'm Buddhist because I think we're all sort of connected to one life force, but I'm Catholic because I believe in the power of redemption. But well, that, I mean, like that, those are actually contradictions, right? Because if we are all, if reality is all of one fabric, then you can't distinguish between good and evil. But you have to have distinguish, a distinction between good and evil if there's going to be redemption. But in, in, in his world, that didn't even make any sense. You just mix and match. But then there's a kind of neo-paganism. And what I mean by this is, this, the, think of old school pagans where you, there's idols. Paganism is where you can see the gods and you can control the gods. You can use them for your own ends. You know? So back in the you know, ancient world, you need a blessing on fertility or victory or agriculture, whatever. You just pray to this one or this one or this one. Well, what do we do in our day? What are our kind of neo-pagan gods? Maybe it's the god of the state or politics. I live in a town with more military installations than any other um, city in America. Maybe it's the notion that there's a kind of militarism or nationalism. Maybe one of our gods that we can control is, is our uh, economy, the market. And we're like, here's what I will use. This is how I orient my life. Or maybe it's technologism, not technology, but technologism, where we kind of elevate and we say, if I want the sense of immortality, it's this that will get me there. And we take good things, but turn them into ultimate things because we've got to be in control. I live in the real world, man. And so people say, oh, you go to church, well, that's cute, that's nice, I mean, whatever. But how do you really make life work? Because i got to live in the real world. That's what we're seeing around us when people are walking away sad. Maybe a third 
kind of influence here is what you might call individualism, a hyper-individualism that just says, hey, it's my life. So I'll decide who I am. I'll write my own story. I'll determine my own identity. I, I will do all of these things. And hey, you can do that for you. <laughs> and if that Jesus stuff works for you, if that makes you happy, bless you, man. It's awesome. Well, they probably wouldn't say bless you. They'll be like, more power to you, you know, whatever. Like, you do you. <laughs> so we've got all of these ways. of, And what we're left with is this aftermath that is Christ-haunted and cross-pressured. That's just, that, those are some phrases that just kind of mean that there's like little hints of Jesus-y stuff around where people kind of, hey, shouldn't we care about the vulnerable? And shouldn't we think about the oppressed? They want a little bit of the Jesus-y stuff, but they don't really want the whole kingdom of God. And so... It's not, is it right to say that we're post-Christian? Maybe not, but we're kind of in this messy aftermath, like after the tsunami where there's living and dead all around us. There's people who are cross-pressured. There are people who are pushed and feel like, I believe, but I'm so tempted to doubt, so tempted to lose my faith. Or there's others who are on the outside and they're like, I don't really believe, but I'm kind of curious about what might be happening. And there's this messy kind of moment Return now to the text with me, Luke 24, verse 15. What does Jesus do? What does Jesus do when he finds people in the messy aftermath? When he finds people walking away sad, it says here, while they were discussing these things, Jesus himself arrived and joined them on the journey. I think this is so remarkable to me. Because all through his ministry, Jesus is saying, come follow me. Join me. And here he is after the resurrection. Like if there was ever a moment where Jesus could say, all right, come on, everybody. Come see how good I look. Resurrection bodies. That was an Anchorman reference. I don't know if you caught it. Okay. <laughs> Watch me glow. Come and see. And yet the, the risen Jesus goes lower than ever before. And he goes incognito and he joins these people on the journey. Like, hey, what's going on here? Jesus himself arrived and joined them. The first thing, I want to say three things today. The first thing, what do we do when we are trying to come alongside people who are disoriented? Number one, we join people on the journey. And maybe phrase it this way. What does Jesus do when we are going through this kind of disorientation and disillusionment? Jesus joins us on the journey. He doesn't just say, well, talk to me when you get it figured out, man. He says, hey, what, what, what's going on? See, sometimes we think about Christian hospitality as we're ready for people to come to us. That's great. And Kalos, you are ready for people to come to you. But the Jesus kind of hospitality is also, I'm going to find you where you are. And I'm going to create these spaces where you're able to tell me what's happening in your journey. I love that about Jesus. Able to join people on the journey. As the story goes on, verse 18, the one named Cleopas replied, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who's unaware of the things that have taken place over the last few days? I wish there was some like modern paraphrase that would say, are you the only one who's been living under a rock? And Jesus could say, well, actually, do I have a story for you? And he said to them, what things? I love that Jesus is, you know, is he playing dumb here? Like what things? You know what I think Jesus is doing? I think Jesus is doing what sometimes counselors call the question that counselors say, what's the story you're telling yourself? Right? Like, like if you've had like, okay, this person hurt me, and you've got these events in your life. You know what we do as human beings? You have the events, but then you, you fill it in with the story. 
And he went, well, I know why they ghosted me. It's because they don't like me anymore. Or whatever, you know, so, so Jesus is saying, I know the events, but what's the story you're telling yourself? And he gives them a chance to kind of say, and maybe this is, this is what we need to hear. When someone says, well, God didn't answer my prayer. Or this happened, or this happened, or this happened. And well, what's the story you're saying to yourself? Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he, So he, they go on, verse 19, it says, They said to him, the things about Jesus of Nazareth. Because of his powerful deeds and words, he was recognized by God and all the people as a prophet. But our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. And here's the line that gets me. We had hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel. All these things happened three days ago. You can almost hear the pain in their voice. We had hoped. I mean, what, what, what do you sometimes feel? Oh, I had hoped the church would be more. I had hoped that I would, you know, maybe what do you hear from people that you live with or work with? Or, well, we had hoped that Christians would be, Right? <laughs> And you can fill in these blanks. And Jesus is saying, what's the story you're telling yourself? But then it says, verse 25, then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, which is maybe not what I would have said, but I'm going to trust that Jesus knew what he was doing in this moment. Your dull minds keep you from believing all that the prophets talked about. And then he says, wasn't it necessary for Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then he interpreted for them the things written about himself in all the scriptures, starting with Moses and going through the prophets. Man, I want that podcast series, right? The Jesus Bible Project, you know? Actually, that is what the Bible Project does, is the Jesus version of that. Anyway, I digress. I think what Jesus is starting to do is the second point here, is to tell a more beautiful story. So what's the story you're telling yourself? Wow, you know, God has abandoned us. We sort of thought we were, we were disappointed again. God has left us alone again. God has dashed our hopes again. And Jesus, let me, let me retell the story. Maybe you're missing some parts of the story. And I say to you that in some ways as Christians, we've kind of shot ourselves in the foot because we've made the story sound like really super bad news. Like, our, we, we've kind of said to people, well, you know, here's how it goes. There's a God up in the sky, and he's got a whole bunch of rules, and you basically are terrible at keeping those rules, and you deserve to go to hell. But, hey, God killed his son, and then now you don't. And it's like nobody says the story this way, but we just, we tell it. And people are listening, and they're like, are you telling me that? And all of a sudden, well, I mean, not exactly like that. but And we're trying to tell the story, and we're like, it doesn't, it doesn't even work. Jesus retells a story, and I wonder if he reminds them of how the story actually begins. Do you know that God's first word over human beings is not a word of judgment? He doesn't make the sun and the moon and says, oh, let's make male and female. Oh, you miserable creatures. (laughs) I'm so annoyed. But okay, one day I'll die for you. That's... Actually, there were stories like that. Those were the pagan mythologies. There, was this, there, there were ancient stories of how the world began that were well known to the people of God. One of them was like the gods were fighting with each other and then they threw a guts of the one god up in the sky and said, that's the sun. I mean, could you imagine telling your kids that as a bedtime story? Tell me the story of how the world began. Well, one day the, this god ripped the guts out of that god and that's our moon, honey. Good night. 
<laughs> Sweet dreams. And into the, onto the scene, Moses starts telling a different story. He's like, no, 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 no. It says, God made the heavens and the earth. And then you go down and it says, and he made male and female. And it says, and he blessed them. He blessed them. That word, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. It gets translated in Greek by the time of Jesus. And the Greek word they chose for that story is the word eulogeo. E-U-L-O-G-E-O. The word, the word that looks like our, from which we get our English word eulogy. Now, when do you say a eulogy over a person? After they die, right? A eulogy simply means good words or to speak well of a person. Now, as us as human beings, we wait. Let's just see how their life was, and then I'll decide what, whether my words about you are good or not, right? God's like, no, no, no. I'm going to speak good words over you at the beginning. At the beginning of your story, I'm going to speak good words See, the story we've been given is a beautiful story because it's a story where God spoke well of you at the beginning. His first word over you is a word of blessing, not a word of judgment. His first word over you is a word of delight, not a word of ugh, frustration. Jesus is retelling the story, and then he says the Messiah would enter his glory. He tells a story with a good beginning and a glorious ending. We sang about it this morning, the hope of resurrection and new creation. It's not an escape. It's not that God will make it up to us. It's that God will make all things new. Good beginning and glorious ending, but here's the part that really maybe got him is not only does this story have a good beginning and a glorious ending, but it has the story of a suffering God in the middle. He says, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer all these things? Maybe our story is not beautiful to the world because we've forgotten that our story is about a God who came near and entered into our pain. There's a world that's hurting. There's a world, and, and all of our sort of false kind of mind over matter statements it rings hollow to people they're like yeah but what about my depression what about my anxiety what about my loneliness what about like does, does god even know and jesus is not only does god know he became the one who was so in angst and anguish that he sweat drops of blood god is the one who suffered so deeply the shame and the guilt and the that, that, that he didn't even deserve. At the center of the story is a suffering God, and it becomes this beautiful story. I love that your church is called Kalos because you understand that it's the beauty of who Jesus is that will witness to the world. It's the beauty of this story that will draw people in. It's the beauty of this community that will draw people in. But you know the story, it, 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 we need it to be beautiful, but we need the story to replace those other stories in our mind. Remember I was telling you alternate meaning-making stories? People think that it's good news that they can be the author of their own story. But it's actually, it's a suffocating weight. So there's people that you work with, that you live with, that you know that are like, no, it's, it's liberating for me to take the pen and I'll write my own story. And Jesus is like, it's not going to be the freedom you thought. So one day you're going to find yourself with a mess and you don't know how to read it's like you don't know how to write the story differently now. But there's one who holds the pen, the author and the perfecter of our faith that he can write a more beautiful story than we ever could. My wife my wife and I've been married for almost 21 years. We have four kids. Sophia's 17, Nora's 15, Jonas is 12, Jane is 9. 
And when Sophia was a baby, we were given some of the best parenting advice ever. Some friends said you should keep a journal and you should write some things that you observe about your kids. So at first, you know, it's like this is your favorite blankie and this is what it took to get you down for a nap and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And as, as she got older, we'd write more, this is what we see about your personality developing, or this is what, you know, and I think Sophia, when she was four or five, I, I don't know how old she was, she would stand on the kitchen table with a spatula and say that she's going to lead us in worship, you know. And we, so we were writing this in the journal. And the goal, when, they, when, when Sophia and Nora, now they're you know, both into their teenagers, when each of them turned 13, we let them read the journal for the first time. Well, this is stuff we've been writing to you at least once or twice a year for 13 years now. And the reason we did it is because we said for the next, you know, whatever, five, six years, there's going to be a lot of other voices that are going to try to tell you your story. There are going to be a lot of other people who try to say, oh, we know who you are. And this is, and we just want you to know we were there at the beginning. We know your story. We know who you are. You're, you, this is, you're a beloved. You're, we, we wept when you were born, when you came. So this is your story. And it's super fun now because Sophia's 17. She is leading worship at the church. That's pretty cool. And when they're 18 and they leave the home, we'll give them the journal to keep with them. Now, maybe you're listening to here. You're like, will you be my parents? <laughs> Listen, you have a father in heaven who has done exactly that. And the scriptures is the story of God looking over you at the beginning and saying, hey, I, I, I was there at the beginning. Don't listen to the devil. Don't listen to the culture. Don't listen to your... I was there at the beginning. And this is what I said over you. Beloved, blessed, special, gifted, called. This is the beautiful story we have to offer the world. Amen? As the text goes on, it says in verse 28, when they came to Emmaus, he acted as if he were going on ahead. But they urged him saying, stay with us. It's nearly evening and the day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. And after he took a seat at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Luke uses this formula, blessed, broken, and given, numerous times in his gospel. The first time when Jesus is feeding the 5,000, the second time at Passover. But here's a moment where Jesus is doing it, and it's not actually his party. Like the feeding of the 5,000, that was his, his deal, right? Passover, that was kind of his deal. This is like, he's a guest in someone else's home. Now, I don't know what the culture context is for where you grew up, but in Jewish culture, the guest does not bless the meal. That's the host's job. That's the, the host. There's, there's even a prayer in Hebrew. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. I'm just doing that to impress you, but that is Hebrew. For blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. <laughs> The giver of bread, and they would pray this prayer. And Jesus is like, he's the guest. But as soon as he comes in, he's like, I'll take it from here. <laughs> and I love that about Jesus. We join people on the journey. We tell them we're a beautiful story. But you know the presence and the power that changes everyone? It's not us. It's Jesus himself. The only one who changes lives. The only one who for thousands of years has been changing lives and rewriting stories is Jesus himself. And so the third thing from this text is we welcome the presence and power of God. That's what we do. And if we're saying this, Jesus joins people on the journey. Jesus tells a more beautiful story. Jesus is the very presence and power of God. And for us, when you go to work tomorrow or the next day or when you're interacting with your neighbors and your community, like, it, join people on the journey. Find the moments to maybe nudge them with the more beautiful story. But at the end of the day, it's Jesus who's going to get them. It's Jesus who's going to get them. 
And so what, and, and this is the beautiful thing. What did those disciples do? They just said, uh, you, you want to come in? And then he's like, yes, I do. And I'll take it from here. <laughs> and and that, that's like us. I mean, if you woke up every morning, you said, Lord, you want to join me as I go to work today? He's like, you bet I do. And I'll, and I'll take it from here. You want to join me as I have people over to my house this week? You bet I want to join you. And I'll take it from here. So the pressure's not on us, but the joy is that we get to participate with what Jesus is doing. That's why I said to you at the beginning, Kalos, you're called to join what God is already doing in the Pacific Northwest. You're joining this good and beautiful work. Join, welcome the presence and the power of God, and it's the presence of God that changes everything. We meet, uh, so I've been part of the same church for 22 years, and we started New Life Downtown, which is like an extension congregation of the church. Um, in downtown Colorado Springs about 10 years ago, and we've been renting from this old high school with squeaky wooden chairs. It's the best, kind of. And um, we were, But we were out of the high school for like 19 months during the pandemic. They wouldn't rent. They wouldn't do all this. We're bouncing around. We're renting in a hotel for a little while. We're you know, trying to find different locations. I know you would never understand it, right? <laughs> no clue. And finally, we got word that we were going to be able to get back in the high school. And we do this project like every May and October, we do kind of like a service project for the school. Typical kind of bureaucracy. They have money set aside to buy things, but they don't have, there's too much red tape to actually like pay people to do work. So they have all these supplies and like, will you help us paint the you know curbs in the parking lot, wash the windows, do all this, you know. So we're like, yeah, we'll do it. So on a couple weeks before the day that we were returning to the high school, you know, dozens of our people were out there kind of working on the project at the school. And there's a facilities guy named Angelo, and he was talking to one of our volunteers, and he goes, man, we've missed you guys. I'm like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, it's kind of weird, but, like, when you're in here on a Sunday, we just kind of start on a Monday knowing that, like, oh, everything's going to be okay. He's like, but it's kind, of, it's kind of felt dark without you guys. He's like, like, like well, we're missing a covering or something. I'm like, huh, interesting. You don't say. You know? <laughs> like, that's the presence of God. That's the power of God. This is what Christians have that, that uh, the world is dying for. I mean, imagine if you, you had to go to the ER for a broken arm or something. You're sitting in the ER and you're like, help, I need help. I need, you know, I need some treatment. And the, 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 you know, the triage nurse is like, oh, that's great. Um, we have a new latte bar over here. And it's like really amazing. Would you like a, a latte? And you're like, no, I have a broken arm, you know? And like, I know, but, you know, we've got alternate milks now. Almond milk, oat milk, soy milk. What, what, what? I've got a broken arm. I'm not here for the coffee. I'm like, okay, all right. Well, I also want you to know we have a jazz band over there. They're like amazing. Like they can do all the songs. And you're like, I didn't come for the jazz band. I came because I've got a broken arm. Listen, there's something that the church in every community has that cannot be found anywhere else. They can find some tips and some techniques and they can find friendship and they can find all that, but there's something that takes all of those things and takes it up a notch to the next level and that is the power and the presence of God. See, what Jesus did with those disciples in their home is he took something ordinary. He just took bread. He just took wine and he made it something that actually made their eyes open. It says at the end of the story, it says, "Did not our, were not our eyes opened when he broke the bread among us? What if Jesus can do that, not just when we gather, but when we're sent back out into the world? You're like, well, it's just my job. It's just my, I don't do anything special. It's like, bread is not all that special. But this is what Jesus does. The power and the presence of God. 
I want to invite Andrew up here today, and we're just gonna we're gonna respond in this moment. Maybe you're here, and you're you're thinking about people in your life. You're like, I, I how do I help them, Lord? And maybe this morning the Holy Spirit will give you some little nudges and insights to say, okay, maybe joining them on their journey and asking them the story they're telling themselves, maybe it can look like this. Maybe we'll get some ideas about that today. Maybe you want to reflect for a moment about what it looks like to welcome Jesus into it, to not divide up your life. Like, well, I go to church on Sundays, but then I have my regular job. And maybe you can start to think about, how can I welcome Jesus on the scene everywhere, every day? In every moment, come on the scene, Jesus. If you can take bread, you can take my job. If you can use that, you can use anything. But others of you, it's actually more personal than that. You're listening to this and you're like, no, that's me. Like, I'm kind of disillusioned. I'm kind of like on the verge of walking away from all of it. I'm pretty close to giving up. You're watching online. or you're. And maybe the invitation for you today is to say, before you walk away, would you look at this Jesus? Yeah. Maybe not the Jesus that was presented to you. Maybe not the God that you heard about. But this Jesus. The Jesus who joins us. The Jesus who tells us a story with a good beginning and a glorious ending and a suffering God in the middle. Would you say yes to that Jesus? <laughs> this morning. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, this could be a moment where you... Respond for a minute. And if that's you and you're saying, I, I want to follow that Jesus. I don't know enough and I'm not sure about all of this, but I do, I am compelled by that, by Jesus. Would you raise your hand just where you are with every head bowed and every eye closed? And we're going to pray this prayer together today. All of us. I mean, all of us as followers of Jesus, we, we, we pray this. It's like a daily yes to Jesus. And if you're here and you're kind of doing this like your moment for you, this is your first time, there's an invitation afterwards to, to text a number on the screen so that we can help walk alongside you, join you on that journey with Jesus. So let's pray this, these words together. Lord Jesus, I need you. Say it with me now. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I open the door of my life and receive you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Take control of my life. I turn from my old ways and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you so much for joining us for the Kalos Church Podcast. Hey, if you feel comfortable, we would love to see you and meet you in person. We meet at 945 and 1130 every Sunday at the Hilton Garden Inn in downtown Bellevue. If you want to join us, head to www.kalos.church. You can get all the information you need and sign up so we can make sure there's a safe place for you to come and experience the beauty of Jesus with you. We'll see you next time.